We have the, the privilege this morning of continuing um, in the book of Mark to look at the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, we talked last week, and we were just in that one verse, that first verse, really just an introduction that says this is the beginning of the gospel. And so we asked a couple questions. What is the gospel? Right? The gospel is the good news that Christ has come, that the, the one that everyone waited for, that they hoped for, He'd actually shown up and arrived. And then Mark goes beyond that and says the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he kind of tips his hand right off the bat saying, hey, I, here is who Jesus is. As you read about him, you carry this with you, that he is both fully man and fully God. And so today we continue in that. And we see what a, the, the entry of Jesus into the narrative. And we get to rejoice together in that. Now, Last week we did one verse, this week we're going to do three sections, and so we're going to kind of move a little quicker through this, um, and it's going to be like that in the Gospel of Mark. He uses this word immediately or straightforward often, and it kind of jumps from one scene to the next, and you feel like you're kind of stopping and going sometimes, and I was thinking about uh, learning to drive. Some of you have teenagers that are learning to drive, and how as you're teaching them, they don't know how to to ease into the gas or ease onto the brake, and so it's very, very stop and go. That's what it's going to feel like sometimes as we're walking through this narrative of the gospel of Jesus. And today, we're going we're gonna to go, and we're going to see a couple things right off the bat. We're going to have a connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That's, that's key. That's a, that could take a while, but we're just going to kind of move right through it. And then we're going to see John the Baptist, and really, Mark's gospel doesn't give us a lot about who John the Baptist was. It's, it's a very short section. And then we're going to see the, the baptism of Jesus. And so that's a lot to go through, but we're going to move through that today. So I pray that God would, by the power of His Spirit, through the work, through the work of His Spirit and by the power of His Word, that He'd change our hearts, that we would see Jesus and that our affection would be stirred for Him and that it would change the way that we live. So I know we've prayed a lot this morning. I'm just going to pray real fast. Uh, Lord, would you do that today? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Lord, would we behold your beauty? Would we behold the, the triune relationship of the Godhead and how they glorify one another and how they love one another? God, would we hear the word repentance and not run from it, but run to it? God, we know that we need you to do that in our hearts today. And so we would ask that you would. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, um, like I said, we, we were in verse 1 last week, so we're going to jump right into verses 2 and 3. This idea that we're starting at about two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of the way. If you have a, an actual Bible, if you're looking at it on, on an app, then you won't quite get the magnitude of it. But if you have an actual Bible, you can see that there's a lot in front of it, right, that we're not looking at yet. We're jumping right into this story, and it feels like mid-story, but the reality is that all of this story has pointed to Jesus who would come. In the very beginning, it was a plan of God to send His Son, to redeem a people for Himself for His glory. And so today, we get to read that and see that. One of the ways that it connects is in verses 2 and 3. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet who is many years before Jesus comes. It's not like this was the, the one right before this, you know, a couple of years before. No, this was 
many years before, prophesying and predicting and, and by the power of the Spirit being said to, to speak this word, that there would be one who would come. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now, last week we laid a little bit of the foundation. Mark's gospel is being written to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome is different from where some of the other gospels were going to. The church in Rome was under persecution because a lot of, a, a lot of commentators and scholars believe that this, this letter from Mark is delivered to them during the time of Nero, where Nero has, uh, many people believe Nero started the fire that burned Rome, but whether he did or not, he blamed the Christians for that fire. And so if you said you were a Christian, you came under persecution. And so they're looking for this letter, and they get this letter, and they'd have to read it in secret. But they'd already sacrificed just to gather together to be able to read this letter. They would, they would have leveraged everything to hear the words. And so today, they hear the words, it is written. Now, it is written, spoke to both the Jewish community, and it spoke to the Greco-Roman community, because it is written was a way that would, that would give some, some legal grounds, some standing to whatever came after it. Often it was used if a, if a new law came into a place, or if there was a new king, or if there was a new ruler. There would be this official decree as it is written. And so Mark's presenting that to them. And to the Jewish community, they knew that as it is written often meant in Scripture, in the Torah, it was the law, it was God speaking. And so they, they hold it with reverence. And what did it say? It says, Behold, I'll send a messenger who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. So this idea of making straight paths and preparing the way. You see, in, old, in, in the, this time frame, if there was a new king, they would make a straight path and a way, and the, and the royal procession would go forward. And they would choose a path so that everybody, as many people as, as were possible, could see the king walked by. And so they would level things if they were blocking and obstructing view, and they would raise things up so that people around them could see. Probably in our day, one of the things that we think about is maybe a parade, right? And how the, the Macy's Day Parade goes through New York City, and they raise up these, these um, bleachers so that everybody can see what's going on. Or another thing that came to mind was like a funeral procession and how that everybody stops as the procession comes by so that they can see. And even the police would go out in front and stop traffic so that that procession could move through. Right? And so here, God is saying that I'm going to send one that's going to prepare the way so that the king can come. And he's preparing the way so that everyone can see the king. That's his goal. That's God's goal is that people would see the king. And he's going to raise up the paths and, and make straight paths and make a way for the king to come. So already Mark is calling to mind this Old Testament reality and saying, keep that in mind as we introduce John the Baptist. And we see John the Baptist. And our first impression of John is, man, that dude, he looks crazy. He eats crazy things. And he has a crazy message. Right? When we read John and we see, we see that he appeared first baptizing in the wilderness, right? So just 
as soon as you see wilderness in verse 4, all you have to do is look up one verse to verse 3 and say, well, that out of the wilderness is where the prophecy said that he would come. So Mark's connecting that, and he's saying, hey, all of this that's about to happen connects to everything that you've believed. Or maybe you're hearing about it for the first time because maybe the Romans didn't have all of the Jewish traditions, and so he's laying some groundwork for them. But he's connecting these two things. So he's coming out of the wilderness. We see that he was clothed in verse 6 with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Man, this guy is different. Right? Maybe he's not so different from the rest of the people in the wilderness, but the people that are coming out of, uh, that are coming out of Judea and Jerusalem, they're coming out of the city and they're seeing this guy who's preaching a crazy message of repentance. And they're saying, that guy's different. And yet they keep coming in droves. It says that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, in verse 5, are going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. That's not something that everybody gets excited about every day. If you said, come to me and confess your sins, I don't know that I would run quickly to you. But that's the message that John the Baptist is preaching and that he's calling people to, and they're coming. They're coming because one of the things that they see in him is this fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. And Mark's trying to lay that before our eyes. This idea that there is one who would come to make way the, the path, make the way and the path straight for the king who would come. And so from Judea and from Jerusalem come the people that know that there is a king coming, that believe that there's a king coming. And so they come out to see what John has to say. Three things about John. We're not going to spend the whole time, although you can do it. I would encourage you this week. Listen, we believe that this is not all of the church, that this hour that we spend together is not all of us being the church together. So this week, I encourage you, go to the other passages about John in the different gospel accounts and read more about John. Read about what he says and and what he was speaking and what he called them to repent of. Read his interaction with Jesus and how he says, I can't baptize you. We don't see that in this passage of Mark, but it's in the other passages, so read it. Dive in and let's be the church together. And then, as you see things that you're like, wow, that's amazing, share it with those around you. And we as a church together get to encourage one another and point each point each other to Jesus, which is our mission. It's what we're called to do, to behold Jesus and to point to him. Three things about John, real fast. The man, the, the method, and the message. The man, he was a Nazarite, and we, we find that not necessarily in, in this account of John, but in the other accounts of John, he was a Nazarite. A Nazarite took a, a special vow of consecration to God, which is Uh, often would be they wouldn't cut their hair, they wouldn't have any kind of alcohol, so they would be separate and set apart. That's this man, and we see it. He's in the wilderness. He looks different. He sounds different. He probably smells different, right? All of that is true, and this man is set apart to be different. 
That's the man. And as we see the man, Mark wants us to recall another prophet, the prophet Elijah. He's he's putting these things together. This prophecy is a a combination of Isaiah and Malachi. Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40 verse 3. But also in Malachi, in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, we have this prophetic proclamation by Malachi. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Some serious stuff. But the beauty of it is that he focuses on the relationship that the hearts would be changed. And what is John preaching? John is preaching a baptism and calling people to a baptism of repentance that their hearts would be changed. More so than what their actions would speak, what are their hearts speaking? What are they believing? What are they longing for? Today, that's got to speak to us too. What is our heart saying? What do we long for? Are we chasing after other things? Or are we longing for Jesus with every word, with every thought? And if not, why? And can we repent and confess that to be true? This is the message of John the Baptist. But before the message, the method, his lifestyle is different. And it's so different. The way that he calls people to repentance, the way that he lives, acts, speaks is so different that it gives weight to his words. And as a preacher, that's convicting. If my lifestyle is not different than the world around me and I call them to something, then there's something broken. And so the message needs to match the inner man and it needs to match the method that we go about it. We need to live lives that are different and set apart so that when we call others to be different and set apart, they see it and they realize it. Lastly, the message. The message is this idea of repentance. This idea of turning the hearts of the children back to the Father. Listen, Mark, he doesn't use a lot of words, but everyone seems like it's it's perfect. Because it all moves through in a way that we're about to see Jesus come and the Father speak to him. And when you talk about hearts of sons and fathers, you're going to see the heart of the Son and the heart of the Father in the baptism of Jesus. Listen, this first proclaimer, John the Baptist, we can learn a ton from him. We can learn about the message that that our lives should be preaching. We can learn about the method and we can learn about what is the heart of the the man who's captivated by a mission looks like. And John is preaching a baptism of water and repentance. But he also recognizes that there's one who's coming after him. This isn't the end. This isn't what's going to actually make you right. This being dipped in the water is not what's going to change everything. There's one who comes after me that I can't even untie his shoes. That's how great he is. And as a bystander looking and saying, John, you seem pretty great, man. Like, they're coming to you in the thousands from the cities. And he's, he's saying, no, but I am nothing. But there's one coming who's greater than me. 
Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Enter the one who's greater. Enter Jesus the King, the one whose way is being prepared, whose path is being made straight. Jesus comes in. And what we don't have in this account that we get in the Gospel of Matthew is is this, this beautiful thing of John saying, I can't baptize you. And Jesus saying, no, we have to do this. Because John understood that he's the one who is the greater one that's coming. And he's in awe of him. Verse 9 through 11 says this, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heavens, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Just going to let that sit for a second. My immediate question becomes, why? Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Particularly if John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, what did Jesus, the Son of God, have to repent of? He was perfect. Mark's already said that. He he says in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If he's the Son of God, he's perfect. Why would he need to be baptized? He didn't need to repent. So if his baptism was not for him, then who was it for? And what we'll see in so much of the life of Jesus is that the way that he lived was not for himself. The way that he lived was for us. You see, the baptism that Jesus walked in obedience through was for the believer. His baptism was for us. Also, in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew Um, Chapter 3, verse 15, after John argues with him and says, I can't, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me, Jesus says that, no, we have to do this so that all righteousness will be fulfilled. What does that mean, that all righteousness would be fulfilled? So Jesus' baptism, if we're putting these pieces together, is the fulfillment of all righteousness. See, this is Christ walking in perfect obedience, walking in righteousness on behalf of the believer. When we talk gospel, and we've talked about it for the last couple weeks, we say that gospel is not only the death of Jesus that would cleanse us from the sin that has entangled us and ensnared us, but the the gospel is also the life of Jesus. That if we are hidden with Christ in God, as we looked at in Colossians for a couple weeks, That means that not only is my sin washed away, but his righteousness is on my record. What does that mean? That means that as Jesus walks perfectly in obedience to the Father, he's doing it for us, on our behalf. He's walking that perfect path that is being called out by the prophets. He's walking in a way of righteousness that's being prepared by John the Baptist, he is doing it as the king. But he's doing it in a way that no one thought he would come as. 
He's doing it as the humble, suffering servant walking in the path of righteousness for our sake. This is why He came to earth. This was the plan of God in the beginning that Christ would come, that He would fulfill God's plan of salvation so that God would be glorified. Isaiah 53.11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's good news. That's, that's excited me this week. My wife Randy said, you just seem really anxious this morning. And I said, I'm, I, maybe, but I'm also really excited. So hopefully, that's what it is. It's excitement. Like There's something real here that we get to cling to, that we get to say God has walked perfect righteousness, and I get to walk in it. And we're going to see how we do that in just a second. The reality is that this is the Trinity. Maybe you don't know what I mean when I say Trinity. We believe in the church that Christ is the triune God. He's three different parts. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And somehow, all of them are one. All of them are one. They all have the same purpose, that they would glorify each other. And then they've invited us into that, to participate in that glorifying God. And here we see it in in the baptism. We see the pleasure of of the Father, right? In the words that come from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Malachi, talking about the hearts of the Father to the children and the children to the Father, it's not talking about us. Our love for even even the greatest love of father to son and son to father or children to father and mother, that, that familial love which we We've experienced, some of us have experienced and say, man, there's, there's nothing I wouldn't do for my kids or there's nothing that I know my kids wouldn't do for me. That doesn't, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the love of the Father God for the love of the Son God. And you see it. Jesus hasn't even done anything yet. This is our first introduction to him and we already see that God is pleased with him. And he has been pleased with them since beginning of eternity. And that's the way the triune God works. They glorify each other. They glory in each other. They enjoy one another. That's what true community looks like. The pleasure of the Father, the obedience of the Son, the empowerment of the Spirit for ministry. It says that the Spirit descended on Him like a dove. Now, does that mean that Jesus didn't have the Spirit before this? No. They were one. But there's a particular anointing that's coming on Jesus for His ministry that the Spirit is is falling upon Him. R.C. Sproul says it this way, the Spirit anointed the human nature of Jesus. We tend to think that Jesus performed His miracles in His divine nature. Actually, He performed them in His human nature through the power of the Holy Spirit given to Him at His baptism. It was there that God empowered Jesus to fulfill the mission He had been given. 
I've been doing this for a long time. I've been reading my Bible. I feel like at a very early age, my parents raised me in the church. We made um, a lot of sacrifice to be taught in Christian schools. And yet this week, there's a moment where it suddenly became clear that this truth, that Jesus walking in His humanity by the power of the Spirit fulfilled all righteousness that God had called Him to and executed His ministry perfectly. And if that's true for Jesus in His humanity, then that's true for us in our humanity. That the Holy Spirit of God now is ours to walk in all righteousness for His glory and for His sake. And that changes everything. That's radical. That's the repentance that John is calling people to. A repentance that says, just give up whatever it was that you were holding on to. And and as as we look in the passages... Of John, he calls to the religious people the most. And he says, you think that you're okay because of your religion, but your hearts are hard. They're wrong. You've chased after checklists. You've chased after religious rituals rather than the relationship that you see in the baptism between the Father and the Son, the pleasure of the Son the pleasure of the Father in the Son and the Holy Spirit, all of them working together in perfect community to glorify each other. And then if this is true, then that means that the same Holy Spirit dwells in us so that we can now participate in this perfect community, worshiping God, glorifying Him forever, and enjoying Him. couple things to take away this morning. We are hidden with Christ and God. If we believe, then we are hidden with Christ and God. When the Father looks at us now, if we are hidden with Christ, we have the same thing that Christ has, the pleasure of God the Father. So today, if you are in Christ, if you've said, man, I believe that that's true. I believe that Christ has died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he has walked perfect righteousness on my behalf. Then when the Father looks at you, he sees the Son and he's pleased. That's crazy. That the Father, the perfect Holy One, would be pleased with me. Today we believe that if we have been baptized, our baptism is actually with Christ. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. If we have been baptized, we have been baptized in this moment with Christ. We have been baptized into his righteousness. We can now walk in his righteousness. And the third thing that, that I want, to take, want us to take away this morning is that we have this spirit-empowered righteousness. All of Romans 8 
Paul talks about what does it look like to live by the Spirit. I would encourage you this week, go read it. See what he says. What does it mean that we have the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling in us that we can walk in these things? Because it's got to change everything about us. It's got to change the way we think. It's got to change the way we speak. It's got to change the way we feel. Everything becomes radically different when we walk by the Spirit. Titus 3, 4 through 7 says this, talking about the washing and regeneration of the Spirit. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's packed full. We're not going to unpack all of it this morning. But I want you to see the, the correlation because it says, by the washing and regeneration, washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. We have the Spirit because Christ walked in perfect righteousness by the Spirit in His humanity. And so in our humanity... We've been given that same spirit to walk in righteousness, justified by his grace, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This morning there's two calls. There's a call to repentance. And that call is not only for the unbeliever, it's for the believer. What have you believed in this week? What have you put your hope in this week that is not Christ, that is not his his perfect righteousness that is not His Spirit dwelling inside of us, that you've sought the pleasure of God. Maybe you've thought, thought of ways that you could please Him. And all the while, you've had the pleasure of the Father because of the work of the Son. Maybe this week, maybe you're hearing this and you've never repented. Maybe you've never confessed that you need a Savior. And so the call for you today would be repent of your rebellion. Repent of thinking that on your own you can live. Repent of your selfishness and your greed. But again, that's for us too. If we've been walking with Christ for any amount of time, we need to repent of our rebellion, of thinking that on our own, by this law that we could live, repent of our self-righteousness. Of, of religion, which seems easier than relationship, which seems messy sometimes. But we cling to religion because we can check all the boxes. And if we're doing it, then we're right with God. But the whole time, he's saying, no, you're right with me because of the work of the Son. And the other call is, is repentance, and the other call is belief. Believe that the way of Jesus is the best. That this path that's being made straight this way that is being made as we look at Jesus? Because now if we have the Holy Spirit in our humanity, and we're saying that Jesus had the Holy Spirit in His human nature to walk perfect righteousness, what does that look like? Well, we have the rest of Mark to look and see what it looks like. He lifts up His eyes. He sees the broken and the hurting. He calls those that are, that are unworthy to come to Him. And to experience relationship with Him. And He lives a life that looks a lot like suffering. 
It looks, looks a lot like being taken advantage of. It look, looks a lot like brokenness. That may not sound all that great. But the reality is that if it gets us Jesus, if it gets us this perfect relationship, if that's the invitation to what does it look like to be in communion with this triune God, then let's do it. Because that's the best thing that we could ever imagine. And let's unpack how great that is together. Let's encourage one another. Let's believe this to be true. Believe that the atoning work of Christ is sufficient for cleansing and for righteousness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, if we have any belief, we believe that it's you who have stirred that in us by the work of your Holy Spirit. And so we thank you. It's grace and grace alone that we would see you and adore you. God, may our adoration, may our affection change the way that we live so that others would see and know you too. May we be bold. May we be bold in a proclamation of repentance that would call both ourselves and others to repent of the ways where we try to do it ourselves. God, so that you would be glorified. God, we thank you that for the gift of your word. We thank you for seeing the life of Jesus. We pray that we would not be the same, but we would be transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus for our enjoyment, for our joy, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.